Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Our guest today is Mark Gerzon. He's a fellow of the World Business Academy and the president of the Mediators Foundation. He's a world-famous mediation uh, expert who led the congressional retreat in 1997 and 1999 in an attempt to do cross-party initiatives. He joins us in conversation to discuss the reunited States of America, his new book focused on bridging the partisan divide. So, Ronaldo, let's start with an overview of the U.S. and global economy and then move on to a fossil fuel roundup before we introduce Mark. Great. Love to. Hi, everyone. And I also want to just explain, can I tell you what we did this time? It's kind of unusual, so I hope it works. What we did is lots of people come to visit me, but they don't come on the show day. So we tried something new this month with Mark. We actually recorded his um, interview, and we did it in two chunks. There's a 25-minute version that's going to fit roughly 20 minutes in this broadcast. And then there's a full 40-minute, 45-minute, 50-minute, actually 50-minute version, which is on camera. And we're going to make it available on our website. And what we're going to hope to do is to do more interviews like that. And in Mark's case, as you'll hear when we tee up his interview in a, in a, in a little bit later in the program, Mark is a fascinating interview, a really fascinating interview. And so I was delighted to be able to spend an entire 50 minutes really digging into why the new book he's done is so much more important than just a political manifesto. It's really more about the nature of how we move forward as a society. That in mind, um, put it aside till we interview him. Let's talk about the economy. I was, I, I got to confess, Matt, you know, egos, you know, I don't want to be ego invested in this, but I get frustrated when I know the economic advice we give on this show is really good advice that people could make lots and lots of money if they would follow it. And I notice how it's perceived to be wrong by the vast majority of normal economists until they come around. So it is with no ego, but with great joy. I report that today, we're, we're, we're taping this on, um, what, the 29th of, the 28th of April, right? Yes. And the, the front page of the second section of USA Today re re basically says what we've been saying on this show for a year, that the bull market has legs, meaning the bull market is a reflection, no matter how much Wall Street tries to manipulate it. The market is reflecting rising economic activity in the United States. Why is it that the, quote, professionals on Wall Street consistently get it wrong? Why is it they've been calling for a recession for at least six months while we've been saying, no way, it's going to be at least 3% growth or more? And, and by the way, it will be 3% growth or more. I certainly know we'll be achieving that by the end of the year. The, and there's only one caveat I've got, which is the election year anxiety thing. We'll come back to that in a minute. But but what I like about this article, I mean, apart from the fact that it vindicates those of you who listen to the show are getting an advanced notification many months ahead of time of where the economy is likely to go and therefore what to do to protect your hard-earned savings. We don't want to encourage anybody who listens to this show to be what's called a day trader. We want everybody to look five years out and think, oh, where's it all going? And then What's my best tactic? And if you don't want to look five years out, look at least two years out. So what the, what the front page of the today USA Today is saying is 
the reason that the bull market now 2,607 days old, meaning 2,607 days of roughly uptick, the reason it still has room to go is because the U.S. economy is outperforming all the Cassandras who've been saying we're headed for a recession and they're coming around and realizing, oh, yeah, I guess we're not. Why are we not headed for recession? Okay. Well, this ties into the fact that 73% of the U.S. economy is still around, is around consumer spending. Low gas prices, as we've been reporting on this show for many, many months, continues to feed the economic well-being of the lowest income people in America. In addition, 16 jurisdictions have now raised the minimum wage. More are on the way. On the Democratic side of the campaign season, the only difference between Hillary and Bill, I mean Hillary Clinton and, um, and Bernie, is that Bernie's saying let's take the $7.25 wage up to $15 immediately, and Hillary's saying let's take it to 12 and index it so it goes higher automatically in the future. Either way, you're talking about going from, in effect, $15,000 a year, at seven and a quarter to as high as 24, 25, or 31, 32,000. So to summarize, what you're saying is that not only have the skeptics of the bull market been wrong, and they have a track record of that, but you actually think it's going to continue uh, and it's going to get stronger potentially into the next year. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's, going to, it's certainly not going to get any weaker. I would say that if the, again, we're not partisan here, we just call them as we see them, but if the Democrats hold the White House, which seems highly likely to me, and if they also pick up the Senate, which also seems to me to be likely, uh, I think you're going to see some infrastructure spending, which will because I see the Republicans getting ready to do that. I see other things that are going to happen for spending that are going to force the Republican hands. Uh, for example, fighting the Zika virus. There's going to be a one point five billion dollar bill roughly coming out of the Republican Senate side of the Senate. And then I think the House is going to have to go for it. Can you imagine the House Republicans refusing to fund fighting Zika and then having babies with malformations show up and the Democrats pointing to that between now and November. I mean, it's, it's political suicide. I can't possibly be right. So you'll see a billion, one, a billion five go out there. You'll see, you know, the highway, the, the, the highway bill that came through last year, which was a very meager bill, nowhere near enough for what we need, but it went through. Uh, I believe that Paul Ryan is pragmatic enough and he's young enough to want to be president ultimately that he will, he will make a uh, common cause with the Democrats on those things which clearly are going to benefit the Republican brand. That would include infrastructure spending. Uh, that would include some probably some fine-tuning of the tax code. And that would include, I think, a much more um, sane uh, foreign policy than what the current front-runners of the Republican Party are asking for, meaning Trump and Cruz. But in line with what Paul Ryan and the traditional Republicans are already articulating as the, the direction they want to be. So when you put all those factors together, uh, I see that unemployment can't get much lower. We're at structural full employment right now at 4.95%. So you're going to see continued upward pressure on, 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 um, uh, on wages. I think that's a good thing. You're going to see the uh, minimum wage kicking in higher uh, and putting more, pe- more money, pocket, money in people's pockets. Very good thing. And the continuing low oil prices which are not going to go away, are also going to continue to put more money in pockets. You know, if you want to see how good the consumer feels, and 2014 was a good year for the automobile industry in America. 2015 was a banner year. 2016 is beating 2015. Now, and that's, that's, that's Ford, that's Chrysler, that's GM. All of them are doing extraordinarily well. 
And, and they all have innovative new, well, Chrysler doesn't have innovative new designs, but Ford and, and, and GM have very innovative designs in addition to their normal high-end truck business. Yeah. So I, I, I'm just looking at, and, and if you look at, um, I've been laughing lately over these stories about McDonald's that, you know, people are attributing the growth and revenues at McDonald's because they do breakfast all day. And if people think that would make a dent alone, they just don't understand the economy. So, the reason yeah, McDonald's so, so, is doing better is because more people have more money to spend. So, yeah, I was going to ask, why do you think that cars are back? Uh, are they being purchased domestically? And why, why are these restaurants having a, having a spiking and, a, and are on a, on a firm track? Because the, the, um, the, the disposable income, which you are not putting in your gas tank, that's going into your wallet, the... Um, and a certain amount is going to pay down consumer debt, which I'm very pleased about. But what it's doing is it's leaving more discretionary income in people's pockets. So whereas they couldn't afford to go out to McDonald's, now with a minimum wage of $15 a year, an hour, they can. So in Seattle, Los Angeles, other places, they can, they can do that. Yeah, um, the economy is growing right now at about 2.5, 2.6% GDP. That money goes in your pocket. If it doesn't have to go into your gas tank, you get to spend it. Uh Unemployment being so low means that more people are free to spend because more people are working. And with that unemployment so low, of course, it means further upward pressure, which I think is good, on uh, incomes. So if you want to really improve a consumer economy, what you do is you put more money in the pockets of people who are the lowest on the economic ladder. And that's, in effect, what low gas prices are doing. When you add into that, Increases in the minimum wage by jurisdiction first. Now, across the board, it's going to be in, I think, in the federal level. It just means you're going to have a, a stronger economy. What's holding the U.S. economy back is how weak all the other economies are. And that's an example of where Angela Merkel has done, a, I think, a bad job in not engaging in stimulus. And I think Europe is starting to learn that lesson. So before we move on to the, to the international economy, I want to talk a little bit more about the domestic economy. We talked a little bit about the different wage levels and what they actually mean for people's lives. Right now, the federal minimum wage is at seven twenty-five an hour. A lot of states have slightly higher minimum wages, uh, and some states just recently passed fifteen-dollar minimum wages that will kick in eventually. But at seven dollars and twenty-five cents, that's fifteen thousand dollars a year, which is an unsustainable wage for anyone who's trying to support a family. Oh, forget a family. You can't live on that. Yeah. One person can't live on that. Which means, by the way, just I want people to focus. So what happens when we pay? Because I'm, I'm so sick of this argument. Well, if you pay more minimum wage, you're going to be fewer jobs. That's just not true. That's, not, that's never been true. And I, I defy anybody to point to a city, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, who have $15 minimum wages, all three of whom have gone up substantially economically since they got to $15. Because the simple reason there's more money being spent in the trade area. But, but I'm so tired of this argument. Oh, we can't afford to pay more because jobs will go away. That is baloney. And, and, and one of the ways you can test that is you look at and you say, wait a second. If I can't live on $7.25 an hour, which I can't, what, how do I survive? Well, I go without insurance. Who picks up my medical when I have a problem? The emergency room. Who pays for that? You and me. So in other words... If you go down all the different things that are essentials in society, who pays for food stamps? You and me. Who pays for the CHIP program? You and me. So if we don't pay a living wage to the people who are actually working 40 hours a week, which, by the way, I think is ethically and morally wrong and should be illegal. 
It should not be legal in America today that you can work 40 hours a week and be below the poverty line. That, to me, is unacceptable on any level. So when you look at the numbers, it says, oh, gosh, I get it. When you pay somebody a minimum wage, $15 an hour, let's say, or twelve fifty if you're a Hillary supporter, what happens is that person can then afford to go off of food stamps, saving me money. So what's really happening with the minimum wage is it's forcing companies that have been way too greedy with their employees to force us. They've been forcing us to subsidize their low-paid employees. That's what Walmart's been doing. We've been subsidizing Walmart employees because no Walmart employee can live on the Walmart salary if they're the blue-coated people on the floor. Right. What we're doing now is we're saying, wait a minute. Walmart, you're making a big profit. You can afford to pay $15 or $12.5 an hour, 15 in those cities where they've already adopted it, and in those states where they've adopted it. You can afford to pay that, and it takes that much burden off of us, the taxpayers, freeing up more money for police, firemen, and et cetera. So it's, 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 it's so logical. It's only massive amounts of greed that keep that in place. Yeah. Let me give you one statistic, Matt. And I hope our, if, if our listeners only remember this one statistic, 66 people in America own as much as the entire bottom 50% of the population. Meaning of a population of 350 million people, 175 million people together own less than 66 people at the top. That's a classic definition of an aristocracy. And America doesn't do well as an aristocracy. That's why it was formed as a republic 200 years ago and is the noble political experiment that it is. So moving on now to the international stage, Ronaldo, it looks like international politics are uh, very very confusing and a little bit uh, up in the air at the moment. What, where, what are you seeing in terms of leadership or lack thereof? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm extremely impressed with, um, as is everybody, I think, with the Italian prime minister, um, Renzi. Uh, in an interview he did recently, I'm trying to remember who was interviewing him. It, um, I forget now who the, interview was, who, who the interviewer was. But Renzi said... It was Fried Zaccaria, wasn't it? It was. It was Fried Zaccaria. Thank you very much. And, the, and, 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 and Renzi said, um, we have a duty, a responsibility to deal with the plight of these, these um, immigration, these migrants, these refugees. And they are refugees. And uh, Zakari said, but, but doesn't that cost you politically? And he said, well, but, but it doesn't matter. It's what I have to do to maintain my dignity. And what he meant by that was his personal integrity. And so if it costs me political um, mileage to, take, to sell the truth, which is we must help this crisis. And, and he has a long-term plan, which several international leaders are talking about, which is to build safe zones inside of Syria and Iraq where the immigrants could go. Uh, I've long believed in that policy. The administration, Obama, I disagree with him on this, has been against that because they're afraid of reengaging large ground troops on, on, on the ground. I think that they're going to be forced to create these, if you will, enclaves. They're going to be forced to do it. And I'm hoping that they do it with um, a lot of European allies who I think also see that it's the only way out to stop this massive migration. It's also going to be a prototype map for what's going to get worse and worse in climate change because we're going to have to deal with that as well. So how does the world take care of the literally tens of millions currently, soon to be hundreds of millions of people who are adversely affected? So my, uh, I'm very proud of what Renzi's doing. Uh, I'm also very proud of what Angela Merkel. I don't agree with her economics, but I do agree with the fact that she said if it weren't for people in the Marshall Plan taking us as refugees 
we wouldn't be here today in Germany. And she went on to include the way the world supported the reunification of Germany when the East German government was completely bankrupt. By the way, Angela Merkel was in East German the whole time. And it wasn't until the reunification of Germany that Angela Merkel was even allowed to run politically. So she understands the stakes. I think they all do in Europe. I also think that they all are, well, I know for a fact that Obama's um, credibility uh, with all of our allies is extremely high. They, they all understand he's a very smart guy. Uh, he's very insightful. He's very, he, they, they like him a lot of which they're way more than they here in the U.S. Although I note that his U.S. Uh, approval ratings are up also right now. So I think that um, they're doing a great job. The problem they've got, I mean, there's, there's two massive problems they're dealing with. One, the migration or immigration problem or the refugee problem, which is only going to get much worse over time. We can come back to that if you want. But it, it, to ha can you imagine having a million people land on your shores? I, I'll tell you one story, though. The, the crown jewel of countries dealing with the refugee crisis is Lebanon, of all places. A country of four million people, and they've taken in two million refugees. The head of the Department of Education for Lebanon about a week or so ago said that he believed that it was their duty to ramp up the school systems, which now have to accommodate more children than they had in Lebanon to start with. So they've doubled their population because of refugees. And, they're, and they don't have, I mean, the country was broke to start with. So the international community, he's saying, has got to come around and help us financially do this. But we have a moral duty to not wait and to start working on it. And I'm, I'm, I'm delighted at the way that they are approaching it, Lebanon. Uh, it's quite remarkable. And, 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 and that's a burden that no one should have to bear, you know, to basically increase the population of your country by 50% with refugees. I mean, how do you deal with just the plumbing? <laughs> how do you deal with food? How do you deal with I mean, everything you can imagine? But their feeling is these are refugees. We must help them. Uh, I believe that Europe, with a million people hitting their shores, has only begun to see the, the problem. I think there'll be more than many, many, many multiples of a million coming towards them over the next 10 years. They have to come up with a solution. That's why I kind of like Renzi's solution. We've got to build an enclave in the Middle East, one or more, where they can flee to to save their lives, but where they don't have to flee all the way to Europe, getting taken advantage of by um, the modern day coyotes, the, the, the smugglers, by getting taken advantage of the people at the border, by getting taken advantage of all the other ways that this is breaking down. The other thing, I think we're looking at is it's very difficult to integrate culturally people who have very, very different views of how the world works. And so building the enclaves will tend to minimize, if not eliminate, the massive culture clashes, which are starting to occur in Germany, and to Obama's point, driving the politics of Europe to the right wing, which is, I think, um, extremely important. So really like Renzi, like what he's doing. Um, now, the only other issue, so I said there's two. One is the refugee crisis. The other is Brexit or the British exit. Brexit. The, the British exit from the European Union uh, trading zone. Is that right? Yes. Yes. The, the vote that's coming that Cameron said he would do, I think it's in June. June, I think. June 23. I looked it up. Yeah. Okay. So th that's a huge vote because if England in fact, votes to leave the European Union. It will take Europe a year or two at most to recover. London will never recover. It will be the end of the, the British Empire. 
uh, which is sort of ended already. The empire's ended. It'll be the end of Britain as a global major figure. I mean, it's, that's just that simple. Why? 44% of all of the UK's experts go to Europe. That will be decimated if they slam their door on Europe. How do you take 44% of your customers and tell them you don't want them anymore? Oh, so they, they export 44% of their uh, Total goods GDP. To, to Europe. Wow. So, yeah, they, they'd be essentially taxing themselves. Yeah, they're, they're, basically, they're basically firing their biggest customer by far. And they can't make that up fast enough because that ability to sell into the European Union without tax or borders is huge for them. Um, the other problem they're going to have is in addition to the slowdown of the elimination or well, radical slowdown of their exports to Europe, they'll still be exports, but be radically de- decreased. They're going to have a terrible reallocation problem because they, the stuff they make on the global markets isn't that competitive to begin with if they don't have Europe, which means that companies in America who tend to pitch their camp in the UK do so because it gives them free access to the 320 million Europeans. If the, if the British cannot give you that access, you aren't going to set up in Britain. You're going to set up in Brussels or Paris or, or um, one of the other countries in the EU. And I, there are a lot of choices, but those are the, the main ones. And in fact, you know, now that the, the, the White House has made it clear that we would fight as NATO allies for the Balkans, um, you know, I think Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania have a real interesting opportunity for picking up a tremendous amount. Of, of what would have been British business. So I think it's um, at best a suicidal move on Britain. Uh, it will inevitably reduce the influence of the UK dramatically. They'll go from one of the global five leading global powers to they won't even be in the top 10 within you know 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, good to know. And we'll see how that comes out. I guess we'll have another show before then uh, in May, but we'll talk about it some more then when we see. Just the think board. of how small they are, Matt. Think Very of how small. It's an island. It's a tiny little island. And and, and, and when you cut yourself off from Your the neighbor. 320 million people that you sell to, I mean, it's like, what do they think? But, you know, look at this country. I mean, the, the silly season in this country politically is kind of crazy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we, we had uh, the Trump foreign policy speech on our list of things to talk about. If you want to, I, you know, we could also skip it because it was so ridiculous. But uh, what, what are your thoughts? About the Trump speech? Yeah. Well, I was delighted he used a teleprompter after insulting all the politicians who do because, you know, somebody finally spent him, fed him a smart pill and said, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Trump, you, you really want to be careful what you say when the world's listening. So he's trying to learn. I think that's good. Um, I didn't see it as a foreign policy speech. I thought it was silly. And, you know, as you and I were talking offline before the show, I, I can't believe he's using the old Lindbergh chestnut, America first. I mean, do our listeners remember why Lindbergh said America first is our foreign policy, or should be. You remember. Yeah, because he didn't want the United States to, f- to help the British when they were fighting the Nazis. Right, he didn't want to fight the Nazis. He said, that's a European war, we shouldn't be involved in it. It's America first, let the Europeans fight among themselves. So they got a German Nazi problem, who cares? I mean, that's how foolish the idea of America first was, as Lindbergh first articulated it in the late 30s. It's even dumber today where globalization is not a threat, it's a reality. So you can't, you can't extricate yourself from the world. Um, I, think that, I think that's a good place to leave it for right now. I yeah. would like to, I just, maybe after the interview, uh, 
with um, Mark. Um, let's come back because I'm fascinated by the fact that Peabody Coal, the largest coal company in America, one of the largest in the world, filed for bankruptcy since our last show. And I'd like to do a little roundup of where we are with fossil fuel. Yeah, so do you want to do the interview now and then come back and do the fossil fuel? Yeah, I really like this interview. So I, and, and again, if people like what they hear on the audio portion, the entire interview was videotaped. Uh, and I think you're going to really like it. It runs 50 minutes in its entirety. But you're about to hear a clip that's approximately 25 minutes long, which was our interview with Mark Gerzon, uh, the author of The Reunited States of America, which is far more than a book about politics. With me today is my dear friend from at least 25 years, Mark Gerzon, also a fellow of the World Business Academy, well known for his work as the head of the Mediators Institute, but more importantly, is one of the people who has globally worked for the last three, four decades, bringing conflict resolution into meaningful conversations. He's probably best known for having done that with the United States Congress when he led a series of bipartisan retreats back in 97 and 99. I'm holding up his book here, the new book, The Reunited States of America, and I love the subtitle, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. Now, in addition to his skills as a mediator and his skills in conflict resolution, Mark um, was asked by the Harvard Business Review to do a book which came out in 2006 called Leading Through Conflict, How Successful Leaders Transform Differences into Opportunities. And I thought that was a particularly good setup for the conversation we wanted to have today with Mark, not only about the partisan divide in politics, but also the whole question of how we are looking at ways to transcend that conflict and the dialogue. His background at the Harvard Business Review exercise and book would also lead into that conversation. So thank you very much for joining us, Mark. How do you stay so energetic with all the traveling you do around the globe, mediating all this stuff? Well, I care about what I do, and my life is filled with meaning, and I feel like meaning fuels me. So I think, I think that's probably the answer. So you're the meaning uh, guy. And I try to get in the Economy Plus section. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with the book itself. Um, the book just came out, and the timing, of course, couldn't be better. The fact that we are experiencing the partisan divide in politics today at such a deep fundamental level. You would give the impression when you read this book, and I read it very carefully, that there is hope. I think there's hope because I know the people who are bridging the partisan divide, and they don't get covered by the media, they don't have much money, but they're doing incredible work. And they're doing incredible work with Congress, they're doing incredible work with state legislatures, they're doing incredible work in cities and in municipal government, and they're doing incredible work on the, on the village level and the city level, and you, you name it, but we don't hear about them because we're so trapped in the left-right story. We need a new narrative that highlights these new heroes. But, but how do those heroes make it to the fore, given that they are dealing with a, what some would honestly call a toxic political environment today? Well, they are not coming to the fore, which is why I'm writing the book, and which is why I think citizens need to stand up and say, we're Americans first, not Democrats or Republicans first, and we want leaders who are too. And I think that's where citizens come in, that most citizens are not rigid conservatives or rigid liberals. The parties might be, but the people aren't. So it's actually the people versus the parties. And it says right in the Constitution, rights not reserved to the federal government are reserved for the states and the people. Right. Not to the parties, the states and the people. So that's where we come in. Well, actually, and that's, I'm glad you brought up parties because many people don't realize that the Republican Party has only been here since 1860. So it's long after the Revolution. Right. 
and the party that was here that's now gone, called the Whigs, disappeared. Do you think that one of the ways we might get through the partisan divide is if one or more of the parties either splits or, frankly, disappears? What do you think? I definitely think we need a revolution in the party structure because what's happened is that the parties have taken over things that the Founding Fathers never intended parties to do. Who runs, for example, the Presidential Debate Commission? The Democratic and Republican parties. Who runs the Federal Election Commission? Which sounds like it's a government institution. The Democrats and Republicans. Who decides how independents get on the ballot or don't get on the ballot? Democrats and Republicans. So they have started to to uh, commandeer power that doesn't belong to the parties. And it's particularly toxic now because money has gravitated to the far right and the far left. Most people who put in most of the money in political campaigns are ideologues on the left and right. And the kind of what I call the problem-solving center, the people who say, I, I just want our schools to get better or I just want that problem to get fixed or I want to make sure that if my son or daughter is sent to war that it's, you know, we don't change our minds about the war in a couple of years... Those problem solvers, they've got no resources and they've got no media coverage. So we have a, a, a topsy-turvy political system now where all the energy and powers on the, on the extremes and the middle has been, has been uh, rendered bankrupt. How do, you, how do you break the system open or encourage it to let fresh air through? What do you do? Most of the innovation happens when citizens say, we want change. I worked with Congress in 97 and 99. I was very excited at the time, Ronaldo, that you know, I had more than half the Congress off for a retreat for three days. New set of ground rules, deep work, powerful work. I thought, oh, this is a positive sign. There's going to be significant change in Congress. And what happened was that there was significant personal change, but when they went back to Capitol Hill, they went back to business as usual, and the party bosses wouldn't let them change anything. So. I learned the lesson then, which a lot of people haven't learned, is that Congress is not going to change itself. Politics is not going to change itself. It has to come from the outside. In our conversation, I'd love to explore bottom-up from the people, coming from the business community, coming from the military, uh, possibly coming from nature, and nature telling us we've got to change. But we're going to have to get those outside energies coming into politics and changing politics, because politicians aren't going to change themselves. In front of us is example of Bernie Sanders. So it's quite phenomenal to almost every observer the amount of money he's raised at $27 at a time, basically outraising the formal Democratic Party structure significantly. Um, And yet it appears that Hillary will be the nominee post-New York. Uh, So what do you think is the message that someone who spent $27 with Bernie, who tried to bring money in from outside, Mm. tried to bring influence, and is now discouraged and saying, oh, you see, it doesn't matter. Right. Well, I think there's going to be discouragement on the left, and I think there's going to be discouragement on the right. I also think there's going to be discouragement in the center, because let's say you're a Hillary fan, and Hillary gets elected. What's going to happen on the day after? She's going to be impotent. She's going to be totally hamstrung by a paralyzed political system. So even Hillary supporters, and what I say to most Republicans, I say, after eight years of George Bush, how did you feel? Were you happy? And then I say to Democrats, after eight years of Obama, were you happy? Did you get what you wanted? And consistently people will say, well, no, I didn't. So I think we're waking up to the fact that there's a deeper problem. There's a deeper cause underneath these effects. And, the, and I think the deeper issue is we have to start looking at relationship. There is a relationship between the Democratic and Republican parties, between the left and the right. We have to care about the quality of the relationship, not just whether our guy or gal wins. 
that our guy or gal winning thing is getting pretty old. I've watched my guy win or my, my guy lose, and what I notice is things are getting worse regardless. The debt is increasing regardless. We're in endless wars regardless. Um, education is suffering regardless. The economy is getting whipsawed regardless. So we need some a deeper uh, look at what's wrong, and that's what I tried to do in the United States of America, and look at what are those deeper forces that we have to start grappling with as, as citizens and not stand back and say, oh, my guy won, everything's going to be fine. No, but the challenge is how do you get people to have the power when clearly they don't right now? Right. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you think so, but I suspect you could see violence in Cleveland, mm-hmm. certainly if Trump is not the nominee. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Trump is the nominee, you'll see... Another ter- kind of violence. <laughs> Another kind of violence. Um, uh, I think you will see a coronation in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But even when those are both over, the people on the floor of the convention in Philadelphia who are celebrating Hillary's victory and the people who are gnashing their teeth at the Cruz people, right. um, they're going to feel as impotent to the next day as Hillary will the first day in office, right. in your example. How do people, one person, how do we do something that changes this dynamic? Well, I'm really glad you mentioned the two conventions because I think they're a symptom of the problem. We have one convention that celebrates what I call narrative number one, which is, I'm a conservative, elect me, I'll fix it. We have a second convention that says the second narrative, which is, I'm, I'm a liberal, elect me, I'll fix it. I, I don't think, I believe, I don't believe either narrative. I think the narrative I believe is when we work through our difference, when we work through our differences as Americans, we can solve the problems facing the country that we all love. But how do we do that, Mark? We need to develop this stronger third narrative. We need to start celebrating the people who actually cross the divide. So instead of this obsession with the, who's the Democratic nominee, who's the Republican nominee, let's ask the question which I ask in my book, which is who's crossing the divide in California, in New York, in Texas? Who's crossing the divide in state legislatures? How is business crossing the divide? How's business solving problems? How are mayors in cities across the country solving problems? We need to start looking at them and and honoring them and giving them the airtime and start celebrating that and creating a citizen's movement which has a third narrative. And ultimately, that's going to change it so when the Democratic Party puts forward a candidate or Republican Party puts forward a candidate, they're putting forward a candidate who's willing to cross the divide, not a candidate who's throwing bombs at the other side. What are some of the other things citizens could do to take control? Uh, One of my favorite examples is the Presidential Debate Commission. If most citizens understood that the Democratic and Republican parties decide how many there are, where they are, who they're going to work with, what time it's going to be on, what, what kind of questions are going to be asked, what the rules are, if they understood that, you know, when I grew up, it was the League of Women Voters, right. an independent organization that I, I think citizens could organize and say, we want the Presidential Debate Commission back in the hands of a neutral referee. Imagine if, most, imagine if Americans learned that the Super Bowl you know, that one of the two teams in the Super Bowl was, you know... The referee. They had the referees in their pocket. <laughs> They'd say, hey, we want fair referees. So I think, you know, that's something that really interests me. Why? Because the Presidential Debate Commission should not be in the hands of the two parties. And the Federal Election Commission, right now, who runs, who runs the, the election in the state? The Secretary of State. And guess what? The Secretary of State is a Democrat or a Republican. So why not have a fair... You know, in many countries, the person who runs the election is a nonpartisan position. So if the citizens of this country demanded this, if they said we're going to elect a secretary of state uh, who, who is neutral and who is 
hired because they're going to be transpartisan, we'd have a very we'd have a revolution in the secretaries of state in this country. So let's talk about neutral for a second. Please. Now the news media has done a terrible job, for the most part, of informing. It's done a better job of entertaining than informing. Having said that, that the media has sort of failed in this educational right. role. What happens is that people are increasingly in the echo chamber of their own thought process. Right. And I'm wondering, what could we do if we really wanted to take charge of the system? Well, here's a good example. You know, what can the people do? My friend John Gable, who I profile in the book, started a company called AllSides.com. He's a Republican, worked for Republican candidates. He started realizing being a Republican wasn't making anything any better. Being a Democrat wasn't going to make it better. What he decided to do was to start a company which gives you the news from the left, the right, and the center every day. So if you want to get, you know, the equivalent of Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN simultaneously in your newspaper or in your website, go to allsides.com. He wants to get that in schools across the country. He wants media companies to start using He wants to educate people so they recognize what the left looks like, what the right looks like, and what the center looks like, and give us sort of, you know, triple vision. I think it's a brilliant idea. I hope it's a successful company. And there's a way of using the Internet not to create what he calls a bias bubble, but to burst the bias bubble and introduce all of us to the multiple perspectives on the day's news. One of the things that the media does is false equivalency. Right. They take, okay, this is what this crazy Yahoo on the left says, this is what a crazy Yahoo on the right says, so the middle must be somewhere in between, which isn't actually accurate. Right. I, I have this expression I use with people who... Uh, who tell me that they don't believe in climate change. And about a year and a half ago, I said, you know what? I got nothing to say. <laughs> nothing I can say. And you know, if you believe in the flat earth theory, I also have nothing to say. It's round. It's not flat. Climate change is real. So if you think the, the, the point of agreement is maybe climate change is real, maybe it's not, that's a false equivalency. Without good information from our media, how do we avoid false equivalency when we evaluate our politicians? Well, that's another change that can happen, is that I'm, I'm offended by the notion. I was just in, in San Diego, and the head of the PBS station said, we do our job, unlike those commercial networks, because we have somebody from the left and the right on our show, whereas they just have somebody from the left or somebody from the right. We, we have both. And I said to him, you have both. Is that the solution? I said, you're, you're still giving people hammering year after year, here's the left position, here's the right position, here's the left position, here's the right position. It's like, where's the solution? Right. How's that going to get us closer to a solution if you keep hammering left and right? So the media can play a role in that. Education can a role, play a role in that. And I think the citizens can play a role in that because I think if citizens pressured politicians, we want you to solve the problem of guns that I often say, if you want your kids to be safer at school tomorrow, the left position on guns and the right position on guns isn't going to make them safer uh, because the left basically is get rid of all the guns. That's not going to make them safer. You know, some crazy person who can come and kill your kids at school. The, the right's position is there should be guns absolutely everywhere. Every teacher should have them. Every bus driver should have them. They should be under every desk. Well, that's not going to make kids safer because there's going to be guns everywhere and there are going to be accidents all over the place. So clearly we've got to solve problems the, no, way, wait, the, wait. Way, the, way, the way we do in negotiations, which is we look at the pros and cons of both sides and find solutions. But see, now there's an example. I, I think that's a false equivalency, and I'll tell you why. Um, the fact is that those nations, which are most of the civilized nations in the world, that have dramatically reduced gun violence so kids aren't getting killed in school, right. are ones that have taken removed guns from the population, just like Wyatt Earp removed them from Tombstone, Arizona, when he wanted to tame that town. Right. He said, check your guns at the city limit, because there's no reason to have a gun in town unless you're going to kill somebody, and that's a human. So when you leave town, you can take your gun. 
in the same vein, if the society wasn't permitting guns in a random fashion anywhere you want them, I believe it would be the end of gun violence, and I can point to about 15 countries where that's true. I happen to personally agree with you, but when you're working in the political sphere, if right. you say what you just said, right. you're just labeled a liberal. Yeah. So my view is if you want to negotiate a solution, it's not false equivalency to say I'm going to respect the conservative position. And the conservative position is um, if there's nobody within 10 miles of a school with a gun to protect the kids in that school, then in Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook can happen all over again because there'll be some crazy guy who does get a hold of guns. And my, my view is... Because it doesn't happen in any country but America. You well, understand? But, but, it doesn't happen but, anywhere. But this is where you've got to... On the right, the right will always say, America's an exceptional country. And you've got to deal with the right's view that America's an exceptional country. And I happen to think we have a history of guns that's different than the history of guns in many other countries. So uh, as a mediator, I've learned the only way to get a consensus across the divide is to show respect, and that's different than false equivalency. I happen to think you're right about guns, but I'm not going to say that to somebody on the right and say, the best solution is to get as few guns in the country as possible. And, and we're going yeah. to come right. into a business approach in a second. Okay. But So here's how I would look at it as a business person. What I would say is, well, what's really fundamental? What, what is the right you really want? There are a couple of ways we can talk about it. For And I think this may be the truth for the majority of NRA members. Uh, they want the right to be able to have a gun to go shoot for sporting purposes. I think they want to have the right to have a gun uh, for probably personal protection in their own home, although that's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think they all believe that they need the right to an AK-47. Right. I believe there's probably no constitutional right to that. Just like you don't have a constitutional right to use a, a grenade launcher. Right. You don't have a right to a tank. You don't have a right to <laughs> shoulder-fired missiles. Right. Because so, so it's not all weapons are acceptable right. in a civilian society, even if you accept yeah, the... The Second Amendment was written for muskets, let's remember, Well, right? it was written for muskets, and it wasn't even written for citizens. It was written for the... Militia. Right. So I think history will, will, will conclude in not too much in the distant future that the interpretation recently given to the Second Amendment, very recently given, that it gives you the unrestricted right to guns is absolutely an error. The people in their militia shall be safe to have them. And as you know, the militia building at Williamsburg, Virginia, which is what they had in mind when they wrote the Constitution, is literally a brick building where the muskets were held so the guys could go out and till in the fields, and if the bell rang, they would run to the militia, get their weapons, and defend their town. Right. That's what the militia was. So to me, and this is why I'm, I'm raising the question, I find it a difficult thing to go as far as saying, well, the position on the right is guns everywhere, guns right. all the time. The position on the left is no guns ever. No, I think the position, uh, what I would call progressive position, but is neither left or right, is guns in a way that are appropriate for the density of society we have, which would mean background checks. Most people agree. It would mean uh, probably restrictions on bringing them to church and school. And if there are enough civilians who believe in their police departments, they will trust that the police is who should be protecting Sandy Hook. And if guns are not available on a mail order basis to any crazy person who belongs in an asylum, the police probably will be able to do their duty as they do in every other country. Every industrial country. I, personally, I agree with you. And but why I, isn't that the, the, the why isn't that the trade-off? Guns for appropriate uses versus guns everywhere, as opposed to the one you struck, which is guns everywhere, guns nowhere. I, I'm, I was telling you that those extreme positions are going to make kids at a school safer. 
That's what I was saying. I wasn't saying they were equal. I was saying they're not going to make kids safer. You did a beautiful summary of what I would call the progressive position. The question is, how do you get people who fundamentally disagree with you uh, to start to listen to you? And I'm telling you as a mediator, you don't get them to listen to you by ramming that point of view down their throats. You get them to listen to you by saying to them, you've got a good point. You've got a good point. Let's take your point seriously. But at the extreme, it's not going to make your kids safer. In other words, what I found is that, and this is why problem solving is so fundamental to my book, you've got to say to them, what if you had kids in school together? How would you make that school safer? You've got to make it concrete. Because in the abstract, you're not going to change a conservative's mind. Nothing on this program, nothing on this, what we say is going to change a conservative's mind. What will change a conservative's mind if you say, do you want your children to be safer at school tomorrow? Uh, if so, you're going to have to work with those liberal parents who have a different point of view. So let's get together as a community and work this through. That's the hard work of relationship that I'm writing about in the book. And Americans, more and more, in this sort of fast food, fast information, fast-paced society, click, click, click on our phones, we don't want to do the hard work of relationship. Somebody disagrees with us? Ah, hell with you. Well, we're going to have to start doing that work because we're neighbors. Well, and the reason I asked you the question, why I was pushing it so hard, is I think there's a frustration. I, I certainly think this is true of progressives. I don't think the frustration is as strong on the right. Um, and I, I try to ban the words right and left from my <laughs> lexicon. I don't use them. And I don't use any more liberal and conservative because they're devoid of meaning. Right. So I, I tend to use the words progressive and regressive. Uh-huh. Okay. Do people who want to turn the clock back, who want to go back in time, which, by the way, I understand why that happens, and it happens quite frequently in societies when they change quickly. Right. Or people who want to see society move forward. Now, the reason I'm asking this so vigorously is because most of the people who will listen to the show or watch it are frustrated because they don't know how to have that conversation, and they don't go to the place where you do to open it up. Right. And and I'm wondering how they can do that. And you do it because you're a professional. You instantly go to that place. How How can someone slide into this? Well, in Chapter 1, I talk about confirming versus learning. Mm -hmm. Are you a citizen? Are you engaging in this to persuade everybody that you're right? Is that what being a citizen means? This is what I think about guns. This is what I think about the economy. This is what I think about Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. This is what I think and I'm right. Or are you engaging as a citizen to meet your neighbors and work with your neighbors and learn what the best solution is? Jefferson said we needed to reinvent democracy every 19 years. So Jefferson thought this was a nation of learners. And personally, Ronaldo, um, I think we have to be a nation of learners because the founding fathers had very little to say about nuclear weapons. The founding fathers had very little to say about sexual contraceptives. The founding fathers had very little to say about ISIS and international terrorism. They had very little to say about climate change because they didn't think we had any impact on climate change. They had very little to say about corporations because there were no American corporations. So we can't go back and say, let's do whatever the Constitution says because 90% of the issues we're dealing with, we have to be learners. So for me, one of the fundamental starting points is when I'm with a group of people who differ on an issue, I say, why are you here today? Are you here to confirm what you already know? Or are you here to learn something about what your neighbors think and find a solution? And I get them to buy into learning as principle number one. And principle number two is, okay, we're here to learn. Well, that person disagrees with you, and you disagree with them. So let's, are you interested in a relationship with this person, or are you just interested in clobbing them over the head? Well, if you're interested in a relationship because you're neighbors, then now we've established you're a learner, and you're interested in a relationship. And then finally, third, um, 
If you're going to learn and if you're going to be in a relationship, what's the incentive? The incentive is there's a problem there. You want the school to be safer for your kids. You want there to be more jobs. You want to stop ISIS. You, whatever the problem is, you want progress. You want a solution. So to me, that's the building block for my work is learning, relationship, and problem solving. How could I convert what I know that works in business to what could work in politics right. without getting so frustrated to throw up my hands and say, right. what the heck? And what I know works in business is I've done deals all my life with really conservative Republicans and really liberal Democrats. And the reason we're in the room is because we're trying to get to yes. Right. There's a deal to be done. Right. And so you, even when somebody says something that's like would otherwise put you off, you let it go because it gets in the way of the place you want to reach, which right. is that place where we both right. agree. And business does have the principle, basically, that it's got to work for both of us or we're not going to get the deal done. Right. How do I translate that, which is a, see, it's a different target. So we got a deal we want to do, so we got to get along. So let's find that way to yes, which is what you're talking right. about. How can I do that in politics where it seems so partisan? This divide seems right. so large. Well, I think the only way to do it is to listen to what you just said, because I think it's the solution is embedded in what you just said. You said, we've got to get a deal done that works for both of us. Well, you've got to get a deal done. What's the equivalent in politics? To me, that's what I mean by problem solving. There's a bridge which is falling down. Mm -hmm. There's a school system which isn't educating kids. Uh, there's a military policy that's not defeating an enemy. Um, there's a military budget that's not making us safer. We, we have a problem. Um, and once we commit to that problem, then I think we've got the equivalent of the business deal. Now, if we don't start with a, a shared understanding of the problem, which is your, your whole story about business is, there's a deal to get done. Right. There's a deal you want. Why? Because it's going to benefit both of us. So that's the spirit. And, and that's why I'm very interested in CEOs of Starbucks and CEOs of Cisco and CEOs of Apple and Google. I'm interested in these business people stepping forward and saying there's certain principles in business that we think politicians should be more active in instead of all of them funding left-wing problem, problem makers and right-wing problem makers who are fighting with each other, they should say, we're interested in funding problem solvers. Where's the new generation of political leaders who are actually problem solvers? And I think some of the big companies and the big, the big uh, high-tech companies that are innovators um, should, should, should demand the same thing from politicians. So there's been, a very, there's been a laziness. There's been a political laziness in the business sector. And I'd like to see a political rigor and, and robustness in the, in the business sector now that says, we have a political responsibility. And I can tell you stories about my work in other countries for the United Nations where when the business community steps forward, it makes the difference sometimes between peace and war. And I think if the business community in America stepped forward, it could make the difference between increased polarization and paralysis and actually getting something done. I don't know if you're aware, but we launched a service a couple months ago called the Daily Optimist. Yes. And what we do is we send five optimistic solutions, something that's actually working somewhere in the world, right. out. There's no um, conservative, liberal, right. there's no filter on it. It's just, hey, this is something that's working, thought you'd like to know. People can get it for free, by the way. And our goal is to get 100 million people yeah. to start their day with just one solution to help them see that all the solutions are there if we just keep looking for solutions. Beautiful. So it's totally in line with your book, completely. At the same time, what I struggle with when I talk to people at our monthly meetings and I talk to people at various gatherings, the, there's such a deep frustration about being able to bring that level of supra-thinking to the political divide. Right. And um, it doesn't seem like it's getting better. 
And so people are getting more frustrated, getting caught more in their own camps. What, apart from the motive of someone like you, who's a public servant in effect, what can we do to motivate people to want to make that jump into being the problem solvers, the solution creators in their own political environment, whatever that is? Well, there's two answers to that. On, on a citizen level, the incentive is you want to have a better community that you want to live in with you and your family. That's, right. that's on the citizen level. So when I wrote, when the subtitle of my book says how we can bridge the partisan divide, mm -hmm. I meant we the people. We. Uh, now, you're, if you're asking that question, there's a whole set of solutions. If you're saying how can w the politicians cross the partisan divide, I have to say we have to change the rules. Yeah. Because right now the rules are set up and the funding is set up uh, not to solve problems. The funding and the rules are set up to get reelected and for your party to stay in power. You know, this is fabulous. And um, we're going to have to cut at this point because we're out of time. And right. I could keep this. I'd love to do this. In fact, we, we should do this conversation again. And for those who are listening, uh, we will have a videotape of this that goes longer. It will be the full length of the interview. But um, for now, I'm going to leave it with this thought. Uh, we have been saying on this show for four or five years now, the, re the only solution is what we bring to it. And, and our show is about trying to activate people so they become self-actualized right. and recognize if you want it to be different, it's us. Right. In fact, we often say, if not who, us, who? who? If not now, when? when? <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Wasn't that spectacular? You know, I, I got to say, Matt, one of the joys um, for me personally in all the years since 1986 that I've been doing the World Business Academy, one of the great joys and candidly a distinct honor is to have fellows like Mark Gerzon, who for many, many years, you know, is one of his principal supporters, has always been the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, he's a guy who travels at the highest levels internationally of mediators and whatnot. And his, his political outreach is extraordinary. And he has such an incredible commitment to bringing all of us to yes. Uh, he's a, a good friend of William Urry, who's the, the famous, the most famous mediator probably. And... And whenever I get to hang around with people like this, it's, it, it really inspires me. I'm sure the interview inspired all of our listeners because when you listen to a guy like Mark go beyond his book and you see that the book was just an invitation to a much deeper conversation, you get engaged in that conversation. You go, oh, this is real. This is meaningful. It's worth putting the time in every day to be able to encounter people like Mark. And if people don't know who our other fellows are, I urge you to go to our website and look at the fellows list. It's incredible. And what I'm going to do is they all come to, well, many of them come to visit me from time to time. And what I'm going to do is just keep interviewing them. And I, I hope we build a library of great conversations like the conversation with Mark Gerzon. Great. Yeah, thank you, Ronaldo. And let's shift now quickly to talk about the fossil fuel industry specifically and do a little roundup of what's going on. Because it continues to shift in ways that you have uh, predicted and in ways that are good for the planet. Yeah, Um First of all, uh, crude oil today is at $45 a barrel. If people go back and listen to shows we did probably a year ago, I said that when the, when the oil bounces back up, it will probably stop at 45 There's no conceivable way it can get beyond 65 because for reasons I can, I'll explain. Well, I'll explain then. I'll explain now. Um, between 45 and 65 is when fracking comes back online. You can frack and make money at $45 a barrel. So if you really believe it's going to be at $45, $50, or $60 a barrel, you can start opening more wells. If you don't, what you do is you let your fracked wells run dry. You run them out. Now, why that's important is because unlike a normal oil well, which might have a 20, 30-year or longer useful life, a fracked well, you're talking six months. 
So we, we've been closing down fracked wells. We're not drilling new ones. And so the old ones are no longer putting out as much oil as they were, in fact, or gas. And in fact, it, it, many of them have been bottled up, so to speak. So what's happening is there is less fracked oil on the marketplace today, but still more oil globally than the world is burning. So what, what I'd like to just stop and pay attention to is if the price of oil goes much above 45 more oil will come on the market and it'll be even more supply. And right now the supply is larger than the demand, which is why it's at $45 in the first place. When you look at that phenomenon, you go, okay, there may be temporary blips. I'll give you an example of one that I think that could happen. There's over 20 refineries, major refineries on the Gulf Coast. One or more of them is going to get hit sooner or later by another uh, either a tremendous storm surge or a tornado or a hurricane, something's going to take out one of those because the Gulf of, of Mexico is just very warm water. And when cold air comes from the north, it's going to clash over Texas and you're going to see a problem in Houston, just like we did last week, where basically Houston just got so, I mean, three days of rain and Houston was a complete lake. Uh, and it's going to get worse than that for the refineries. Well, e even if you lose a refinery or two or three, all that is is a temporary blip. It might drive oil prices up for a few months, certainly not a year. So there is no upward push that I can see for the oil industry. Many people thought that Chinese growing at 5 to 6% a year, which they are or more, India growing at 7% or more per year, would keep the coal and oil markets going. And that just isn't true. Both China and India have been pushing very hard to get off of fossil fuel. In fact, China in 2015 burned less coal than it did in 2014, as far as I can recall. And I think in 2016, it'll be less than 2015. Why? Because China's not stupid. China's making money hand over fist building windmills and solar photovoltaic solar cells. And they acknowledge that climate change is real. And they know that climate change is real. And they got a huge pollution problem. So when you put all that together, China's not going back on, the, on oil addiction. They're not going to get, somebody's not going to spin them into believing they should get more, use more oil or more coal. Same with uh, um, Modi in India. So what's confusing the American public? Now, here Peabody Coal files for bankruptcy. Exxon, and I am so happy about this, I can barely stand it. Exxon's bond rating was downgraded for the first time. Now, Exxon made plenty of money, tons and tons, billions and billions of dollars. But their, their bond rating finally dropped and and why that is good is because anyone who thinks that that's a temporary reduction in the statement of the overall solvency of Exxon is missing the forest for the trees. Exxon is in a unrelenting downward spiral for one simple reason. It still sees itself as an oil company, not an energy company. When oil companies start to see themselves as energy companies and redeploy their capital, which is massive, and their profits, which is massive, into renewable energy, then you'll see Exxon stock start to rise. But what you're going to, the reason they're afraid to is they're afraid that everybody will know what we tell our listeners, which is the oil in the ground isn't worth what they say it is because they're never going to pump at least half of it. Therefore, there is water, as much water as oil on their balance sheet. I like that expression. As much water as oil on their balance sheet. Yeah. So the, the long-term situation is this. Folks, you're not going to be able to figure out the price of Exxon stock on a day-to-day -day basis. Don't try. You know, five years from today, we're going to be consuming a lot less oil and coal than we are today. That's why Peabody went broke. That's why Exxon's bond rating has come down. And that's why it will come down further. 
I'll give you one more example. We said on this program at least four months ago, three, four months ago, if not longer, watch for certain of the banks, particularly strong regionals that had too much in the way of oil loans on their books because they were using the oil as the collateral on the loan. Well, we now know it's not just small regional banks. It's a major regional bank that some would refer to as the smallest national bank, Comerica. Comerica's in deep yogurt. They're publicly known to be for sale right now. They're hoping some larger bank will buy them. And the reason every single analyst has pointed to is they made too many oil loans. So that that's not going away. Comerica is not going to become healthy overnight. They're going to have to suffer through enormous write-offs. And, and the write-offs in the oil patch are just starting. They haven't ended. They're just starting. And what you're going to see is that the world is going to accept fairly soon that, that we are going to shift off of fossil fuels. And we're going to replace it ultimately with hydrogen. And in the meantime, with solar cells, wind, and a variety of other technologies, which make us more fuel efficient and give us the ability to clean up our skies while improving our lifestyle. But it's Everybody wins but the oil companies. And I'll end it with this note. I am so tired of hearing people say that the low price of oil is somehow bad for the consumer or the economy, when we now have a year of actual evidence that that is complete hogwash. The consumer is doing much better. The economy is doing much better because oil is so low. There are, it, it, for all the, the stories I hear about, oh my gosh, people are being unemployed in the oil patch. Yeah, but we continue to add staggering new numbers of employees to everywhere else, including they're even hiring in the public sector now. So, you know, if you want to look at raw numbers, are we getting more people in jobs every day or fewer? The answer is consecutively, month after month, more people getting jobs and are losing them, oil patch included. Is the economy rising? Yep, 2.5% or better. It's not going down. Are the oil companies hurting? Yep, Exxon's bond rating is down. Comerica is, is in desperate need to get purchased. And Peabody went bankrupt. All predictable. And in fact, because if you listen to the show, predicted. So if you'd have gone out and analyzed bank stocks based on the percentage of of loans on their portfolio that related to the oil industry, you would have immediately spotted Co-America and you would have said, short sell. By the way, there's all those things you can buy on the other side of the equation. I'll give you an example. And again, we don't, we never recommend an individual stock to buy or sell. That's not my business. But I like to use examples. There's a company, Chipotle, has been hammered by um, E. coli and bacteria problems. And by the way, their biggest one no one has yet figured out how it got in there. And I'm just wondering if any of that was industrial uh, sabotage. But, but whatever it was, Chipotle is known for being a company that really cares about its customers, really cares about the quality of its food. First major chain to come out against GMOs. By the way, all their problems started right after that. Coincidence or not, I don't know. But it did start right after they came out with no GMOs and put signs in all their stores. Chipotle is trading down because their revenues are still so low. If I was going to play the stock market, I'd go and buy stock in Chipotle right now today. And I'd stick it in a safety deposit box and I wouldn't think about it twice. In fact, if you want to mark this, why don't you mark the price of Chipotle today? Uh, and, Matt, and, when you, and then let's, let's, let's report to people as an example where that stock has gone six months, nine months, or 12 months from today. And just to give you an exact quote, it went down yesterday. The stock currently stands at four hundred and seventeen dollars and twenty-two cents. And today it's up four dollars to four hundred twenty-one dollars and thirty-five cents. Great! I didn't know that, but it confirms what I'm saying. And 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 what the real price should be, I'd have to do an analysis. But what I'm saying is, a company with values like Chipotle, 
who gets hit by something that could be industrial sabotage or could just be an incredible bad luck, whatever it is, that company is going to come back and do really, really well over time because they understand that when they take care of their customer and they take care of society, customers stay loyal and they come back. And when they forget about this novo virus that hit them and the E. coli that hit them that hit so many other restaurants, Chipotle will do great. So I see Chipotle five years out in better shape than it is today, and I see Exxon in worse shape, and I would love to have that conversation with anybody who believes in the oil patch. <laughs> great. Ronald, is there any closing comments you want to uh, share with our listeners here before we conclude the show? Well, I guess just this. Um, you can't not comment today on the politics that are going on. I believe, as I alluded to earlier in my, uh, at the beginning of this show, I believe there will be anxiety over this election season. I believe that people who want to see Hillary elected will be anxious that maybe somehow the Republicans will get in and the economy will crash. I see people in the Trump voters are so angry uh, and are being so cavalier uh, that it's entirely conceivable that the Democrats would say, oh my God, if the Republicans get in, it's it's over. Um, In both sides, therefore, there'll be anxiety. So even as we are marching towards November, when the vote will happen, even as that's occurring, I'm seeing a real change in consumer confidence that is not in any way has to do with the economy, has to do with their fear about the economy if either a Democrat or Republican gets in. When, when, they're, when they're afraid on both sides like that, it's really not a good sign. So what what should you watch for to know what's probably going to happen in the economy? Well, first thing I would watch for is uh, Bernie Sanders today began dismantling his campaign. Fired a, I mean, they let go of a huge number of their staffers, which was appropriate because 80% of the primaries are over. But what it's really saying is Bernie's beginning to telegraph, okay, my fight is about issues and the platform. That's how I began. It's less important if I get elected president, he's saying in code, than that the issues I stand for become part of the platform. I believe that when he is out of the race and fully engaged with Hillary and she leads the equivalent of a Joan of Arc campaign to take the White House, I believe it will start to inspire confidence the way Bernie has inspired confidence. And, you know, I want to just point out to people, if you take the total votes cast to date, not only did Hillary receive many, many millions more than than than, than Bernie, uh, she received huge percentage, larger number of votes, total votes, than Trump. So, yes, Trump is going to be likely the nominee for one-third of Americans. How many of that group of people will vote for Trump? Let's assume all third do of the voters, that a third of the, of the voters go for him, or even 40%. Uh, I don't see him getting above 50%, and the difference between 40 and 50 is the Senate. So when I look ahead, I see that the silly season will end, unemployment will continue to be low, the economy will continue to do well, it will do a lot better when we start doing infrastructure spending, which I think will happen after November. It'll do a lot better when people like Paul Ryan demonstrate again, like they did with the highway bill, that they'll permit us to raise a billion five to fight Zika. Uh, I think that women are going to be very excited by the candidacy of Hillary Clinton because the last glass ceiling to break through is that one, a female president? I think the fact that she's pledging to have 50% of her cabinet be females is going to inspire women. So with the women's turnout, I'm predicting will be higher 
than currently is expected, there's going to be a very, very large um, victory for Hillary Clinton. Now, anything can go wrong. Stuff happens. And in politics, stuff can happen in a moment. So I'm not going to put any faith, ultimately, in the certainty of that prediction. All I'm going to say is all of us should be looking downstream. How would your best interest be protected? It would be by supporting candidates who are pro-growth, which means infrastructure spending, bridges, schools, putting money into our society. It means closing the wealth gap so that 66 people don't own as much as the bottom half of America. It means looking with a fresh eye towards the foreign entanglements we should not get into and how we can assist our allies to succeed, for example, in Europe, with the challenges they're facing with refugees. In the face of all that, please get active, get active politically, and get active in talking to your friends and neighbors about stuff that makes sense, that is practical and obvious, and be less a victim of an onslaught of advertising. I'll end with just this one thought. On television screens across America for the last six months, there's been a barrage of ads for, I'm an energy voter, paid for by the oil, gas, and fossil fuel companies, coal companies. It hasn't done them any good. They, they can confuse people all they want, and they have the money to do it. They have massive profits. They control the lobbyists. They control the, the daily input to all the business publications, to the people like USA Today. I mean, they are controlling the national conversation. But at the end of the day, what they're not controlling is the reality on the ground that less money in your gas tank is better for you, Mr. and Mrs. Average American. And it is. And as a result, fewer people will spend fewer dollars on fossil fuels. And Peabody Coal going broke is just one of a long line of readjustments that will happen as we leave the fossil fuel economy behind. Thank God. Hopefully on time, that remains to be seen. With that, Ronaldo, I want to thank you and thank our listeners. We'll be online in between shows at worldbusiness.org. You can write to us with questions and comments at info at worldbusiness.org. And until next time, thanks for listening to New Business Paradigms. Thanks, everyone.